Welcome to Future of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. I'm Rasmus Nielsen. Should platform companies have the power to ban leaders like Donald Trump? And what, if anything, will the steps that companies such as Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and others have taken in recent days mean for the future of online political speech across the world? I'll discuss these issues with our guest today, Nikhil Paba. Nikhil is a journalist and digital rights activist and founder, editor and publisher of Medianama, a site that covers digital technology and policy in India. He also started the Save the Internet campaign in India, one of the largest grassroots campaigns for net neutrality ever with more than a million participants, and is co-founder of the Internet Freedom Foundation. Thanks for joining us, Nikhil. Uh, thanks for having me on, Rasmus. Just one uh, clarification, I'm no longer with the Internet Freedom Foundation, but yes, I did help co-found it. It's a man wearing many hats, um, but sometimes not all the hats he has worn. So let's just quickly recap some of the key steps that different platforms have taken in recent days in response to the Capitol Hill riot in the United States. January 6th at 4.17 p.m. local time, four hours after he had encouraged his supporters to march on the Capitol, resulting in hours of violence and five uh, deaths, President Donald Trump tweeted the video telling his supporters in D.C. that they have to go home now, but also reiterating his false claims of a rigged election the nominal motivation for the riots. Ten minutes later, Twitter removed the ability to like, reply, or retweet the video due to the risk of violence. This decision started an avalanche of escalating content moderation decisions across the tech industry. Facebook removed the post from Trump's page little more than an hour later. YouTube followed suit a few minutes after Facebook. And that evening, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat all introduced short-term locks on the president's accounts. The day after, Twitch, TikTok, Reddit all took similar steps, and Facebook extended the block on Trump's account indefinitely. Twitter then permanently suspended Trump's account, even as companies that may never have imagined that they would have to take a stance on elected officials and others inciting a violent attack on the U.S. Congress, including the exercise equipment and media company Peloton, which has blocked the Stop the Steal hashtag from being used or created within its apps, were confronted with the reality that all platforms are, at least sometimes, political platforms. Conservative politicians, right-wing talk radio stars, and Fox News hosts increasingly protested what they saw as censorship, and some of them increasingly turned to Parler, an alt-tech microblogging and social networking service which has grown its user base to an estimated 4 million active users in the aftermath of the 2020 U.S. election, and is popular with, among others, some Trump supporters, conspiracy theorists and right-wing extremists, as well as conservative politicians, influencers, and media figures. Parler, however, was suspended from Google's Play Store on January 8th. Apple took a similar step January 9th, followed by Amazon Web Services removing Parler from their cloud hosting service. This resulted in Parler going offline entirely January 10th, drawing further attention to the power that private for-profit platforms, especially the biggest ones, including Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon, exercise over political discourse and provoking increasingly intense debate across the globe about how they exercise that power. Some have applauded the crackdown on Trump and some of his most ardent supporters mobilizing around false claims that the 2020 election was stolen, even though many also characterize these decisions as too little too late, a position that's also been taken by some in the Indian Congress party who say that social media companies have allowed this to go on for far too long. 
But there's also been increasing criticism, including from many prominent politicians across the globe, ranging from German Chancellor Angela Merkel to the prominent Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, who say that they don't believe that private for-profit companies have the right to determine who should and who should not be allowed to speak online. In India, the BJP IT cell had called the decision taken in recent days a dangerous precedent, and one BJP MP called unregulated big tech companies a threat to democracy. Nikhil, you've been observing this process from India, where most of the platform companies have far more users than they do in the United States, but where they have also often been criticized for lax enforcement of their content policies uh, that the decisions in the United States were based on, especially lax, it seems, uh, when it comes to prominent politicians inciting violence. What do you make of what happened in the United States, and what do you think it means for India and the rest of the world? Rasmus, uh, if you look at the way platforms have behaved over the last many years, uh, it's very clear that they tend to uh, side with power. So whether it is Facebook doing nothing about uh, the Rohingya violence uh, in Myanmar that was being fostered through the platform uh, until the United Nations raised that issue, or it was uh, Facebook, for example, siding with Duterte um, and, and allowing hate speech uh, in the Philippines, uh, and, and to some extent, uh, the persecution of Maria Ressa, um, you know, and, and, and incitement of, of, uh, of uh, hate against her. Um, and, and even if you look at in India, uh, WhatsApp not doing enough to contain hate speech, especially targeted at, at, at Muslims, given that the ruling BJP party uh, appears to have an anti-Muslim bias, it's it's clear that, that that platforms tend to lean towards power and effectively not do anything about those people who can hurt them. Now, until Trump lost the election, he was in that same position. He wielded significantly more power than the platforms. If you remember earlier in the year, um, Trump had also uh, wielded uh, an amendment to Section 230 uh, of the Communications Decency Act, which basically provided platforms with safe harbor, and that removal of safe harbor would have uh, impacted the sustainability of platforms. So as long as there are politicians who have power and can wield it, uh, these platforms won't do much about hate speech and free speech, and Trump has given a free run for a very long time. The moment he lost power, they turned. Uh, they felt more confident about these bans because he lost, uh, and because he wasn't, he's probably not in a position to retaliate as of now because he also doesn't have much support even amongst the Republican Party. So it's it's essentially the fear of retaliation that that at times prevents platforms from acting, and they have the discretion, they have the uh, the freedom to choose where they act and where they don't. Um, and now that Trump's out in the cold, um, his speech on these platforms is at their mercy, uh, just like regular people like you and me. So I, I think platforms uh, tend to not necessarily be consistent with how, how they deal with speech. Uh, if you remember for many years, uh, Twitter allowed ISIS accounts to fester on the platform. Um, let's not forget that for the longest time, uh, YouTube did nothing about um, about uh, white nationalism uh, uh, channels that were spewing hate. 
until a large number of advertisers, including WPP, Omnicom, and I think Dentsu, all of them came together and refused to advertise on, on or threatened to pull advertising from YouTube. Um, and I remember this, this being mentioned on, on Google's earnings call, that they're dealing with the situation, that they're trying to ensure uh, that these advertisers stay. And that's what they eventually did. They demonetized uh, those channels. So platforms act when they're threatened by those who have power over them. So just to be clear, I understand your your view of this, is the default position in your view often is lax and inconsistent enforcement of existing content policies. And then we should expect to see enforcement mostly in situations where someone powerful uh, is pushing for it, whether that is commercial uh, interest around advertising or political interest like a government and mostly enforcement against those who are relatively powerless to fight back or to hurt the company in question. Well, also also when they're shamed into it. So when journalists write about these issues, about accounts that haven't been taken down, uh, accounts that may be spewing hate, spe hate, uh, hate speech, uh, that's when platforms often act on it. So uh, we've seen this, especially in India, where there were uh, a number of accounts that were spewing hate speech. And once the press wrote about it, um, that's when Facebook started taking them down, uh, especially with an account. Uh, the Wall Street Journal did this extremely impactful story uh, about an Indian politician uh, uh, called T. Raja Singh, who had been inciting violence on his channel for the longest time. Um, and it was alleged that uh, Facebook in, uh, Facebook's India head of policy did nothing about it, or rather advocated against doing uh, Facebook banning his uh, his profile uh, and his account um, because it might lead to repercussions with the ruling party. Now, none of this was proven, and this was based on a report that the Wall Street Journal did based on sources. Um, but, uh, you know, it was post that report that that account was banned. So they sometimes act when the media reports on it. And I think that's where the role of the media is extremely important. In, in highlighting the duplicity of platforms. So I wonder, you have points of the important role of uh, journalism here, um, but also suppose there is a question about the role of policy. Uh, I mean, do you think that some of the steps we're seeing uh, around President Trump um, or some of the examples you provide of journalists scrutinizing the hypocrisy and inconsistencies uh, of uh, policy enforcement means that we should expect platforms to be more accountable uh, on issues like hate speech uh, and incitement to violence in the future? And I think that's especially important. And you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that some of India's most uh, celebrated women journalists, uh, whether it's Bakhadat or, or Nidhi Razdan, um, uh, Rana Ayub as well, who who tend to be at the receiving end of just some horrifying uh, language uh, and abuse on platforms, especially Twitter. And uh, even despite the fact that these complaints are raised, the platforms really don't act um, uh, in dealing with, with either hate speech or incitement to violence. Um, and, and I think there needs to be more consistent uh, uh, takedowns taking place from these platforms. Now, I know it isn't easy for the platforms, you know, when you have, I don't know how many, 500 hours of video being uploaded on, on YouTube every hour when you have billions of updates and messages on different platforms taking place every day. 
it's so obvious that the implementation is going to be inconsistent. But uh, I think there is still, uh, it's important for them, especially with verified profiles and verified accounts and people who are in positions of power, uh, for them to be more conscious of their activity um, and, and activity against them as well. Um, obviously, I would prefer that everyone's treated with the same uh, kind of, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the, uh, the, the same level of, of attention um, and care. But uh, I do understand that sometimes it's not possible for platforms simply given the scale. And algorithms are never going to be perfect in implementing um, those community guidelines. And even as we've seen in the past, the human moderators are stretched um, in terms of, of, of reviewing this content. So it's not an easy job. I understand that. But when decisions are taken, um, then there needs to be greater accountability uh, and there needs to, the buck needs to stop somewhere. It can't be lost to obfuscation uh, and platforms can't just resort to, um, you know, templated boilerplate responses uh, regarding banning of accounts or shutting down of accounts um, for, for many, many users. Right now, in most countries uh, around the world, leaving aside the subset of issues that are uh, clearly illegal and criminal forms of speech, um, the buck mostly seems in practice to stop with the platform companies themselves. Um, despite uh, now more than a decade of uh, increasingly intense discussion uh, around the need for greater regulation and oversight of how online speech functions, um, do you think that there is a case to be made that policymakers have sometimes deliberately let this uh, policy vacuum uh, continue to exist? That they are sometimes in fact interested in a situation um, where there is no clear regulation of online political speech? I, I don't think that is deliberate. I think it's just an extremely difficult problem to solve. If you think about it, uh, platforms are essentially private property or private spaces uh, performing a an important public function. So I've always held that um, protecting the platforms that enable our speech is just as, as important as uh, protecting our speeches itself. Um, and so, um, you know, it's the safe harbor provisions are extremely important and they need to be protected so that platforms can go about allowing us to say what we want to say. Uh, the other challenge with uh, the internet is that often there is, um, it's very difficult to distinguish or even for users, uh, the difference between publishing and communicating. So we tend to, 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 to publish like how we talk to someone. And in that sense, it's difficult um, to, to govern this kind of speech because we don't necessarily pay as much attention to it, let's say as a journalist would or as a media publishing house would. And so uh, because this is speech in its purest form, uh, without editing, without uh, any censorship from the user uh, in, in many cases, um, do we really want to restrict it if it's not harmful and if it's not incitement to violence and if it's not uh, leading to censorship of someone else? So uh, these are no, there are no easy answers here. Um, now, from a regulatory standpoint, because platforms are again performing, a, a, uh, their private spaces performing a, a public function, um, 
they can uh, there is a reticence from from regulators to try and censor them or try and control them because that would lead to over censorship um, and we have to be very careful about how we regulate platforms because we don't want to uh, prevent uh, free speech either and i think the other challenge is that there are platforms that are very very large and there are groups and platforms which are very small as well and they need to be able to have their own community guidelines to be able to um, enforce the kind of behavior they would want in that community so for example um, the same rules apply to a twitter uh, as well as to a football forum um, that that only wants active members who are discussing only football right and so if you if if you put in a message regarding cricket uh, or baseball in that group they should be able to ban you because it's not in line with how they would want that communication to take place um and and the same uh, freedom for twitter and facebook to enforce the community guidelines needs to be there because in many countries pornography isn't illegal as an example um and but there are platforms that don't want pornography uh, because they want to encourage um minors to be able to use the platforms as well so you know i i i find it difficult to justify a uh, strong regulation of platforms when it comes to uh, uh controlling what they allow and what they disallow um in essentially i believe that they should be allowed that that their community guidelines should be in conformity with the uh, laws around free speech in that particular country um but also that uh, there needs to be some regulation in terms of how they impose those community guidelines on users so uh, can they justify that they've done uh, these they've enforced these guidelines on a best efforts basis um can they uh, ensure that you know if if something is illegal in that country if a certain kind of speech is illegal in that country um that that is again it's received surface gone to sufficient levels of scrutiny to decide whether a particular um, uh, sentence or a particular update is in line with that and obviously this is going to be difficult so it has to be on a best efforts basis i mean i think it's worth just highlighting what you point to here and uh, remind listeners that um, as inconsistent uh, as limited and perfect as constant uh, moderation enforcement is on platforms in many cases it still goes well above and beyond what is legally required um, and is far more uh, interventionist and restrictive than what is legally uh, required and in a situation like this where there are many calls for platforms to do more uh, also against uh, legal but potentially problematic and even harmful forms of speech there are also some who are pushing in the opposite direction uh, and i will just point to one example um, from europe where under proposed legislation in Poland uh it might become uh, illegal for social media services to remove content or block accounts if they do not break Polish law so a far more permissive approach to content moderation um than what we are seeing from most of the current platforms Nikhil I, I wanted to get your views on a, a on an issue that's a little bit separate from the complexity of regulating platforms um and of recognizing the great variety both in terms of size function and functionality of platforms and that is the issue of how the same platforms sometimes seem to behave quite differently uh, in different markets um is there a risk here that in effect 
um, users of platforms, whether we're talking about YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or other products and services that live in uh, poor countries are effectively treated as second-class users by platforms who tend to heap more energy and attention on uh, resolving uh, issues in, uh, in rich countries where they make more money and often face more immediate political pressure. Uh, I think, uh, Rasmus, it boils down more to whether there is immediate political pressure and whether that market matters to them or not. Um, so, for example, Myanmar may have been a market that Facebook was largely ignoring uh, when there was incitement to violence uh, against the Rohingya Muslims there. Right? Um, India is a market where uh, platforms have been extremely conscious of speech because of the size of the market uh, and because many of these platforms uh, have their largest user base uh, in this country. Um, it, at, at, at times, what has happened, uh, and it is in the nature of platforms and in the nature of the internet, in the nature of intermediaries to allow this to happen, is that they tend to only regulate when they need to regulate, when, they, when they're called upon to regulate. Um, so as an example, I remember watching this uh, uh, this this chat between Sarah Lacey of 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 what was then Pando Daily um, and Brian Chesky, I think the founder of Airbnb, and he talked about how they 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 allowed certain um, instances in Airbnb uh, violations in Airbnb to to continue because as a percentage number it wasn't really big enough, and it's only when these problems became big that they dealt with it. So platforms usually operate in unregulated spaces uh, as aggregators, and they almost look at instances or incidents on a percentage on a, or a percentile basis about whether this is a big enough problem for them to solve or not. Now, if you have a hundred million users and you know one percent of that base gets affected by something, uh, that's a million people. Uh, but they don't necessarily act on it unless they feel the need to do it because that there is a cost to acting on these issues. And so platforms are able to scale faster um, and, and, and with far more aggression because they tend to ignore uh, what they see as edge cases, even though these, those edge cases may have a direct impact on people. And in India, WhatsApp has failed to do that uh, in the early years, in 2013. Uh, the first set of um, WhatsApp-instigated riots took place uh, in, a, in a town called Muzaffarnagar, uh, where there was violence between uh, the Hindu community and the Muslim community. And uh, that, from, uh, that, I think, at that point in time, they did nothing. It's only in, I think, 2018, after the Indian IT minister started calling out WhatsApp for... Uh, fostering misinformation and fake news um, and because in 2019 the elections were coming up did WhatsApp start making changes to its platform so it started reducing the velocity of, of the spread of, of messages on, on, on the platform so it reduced you could only forward to five people um, after that change as opposed to 256 people before that and so you know just the pace at which hate speech would spread, reduced drastically. So these are important changes that they have made, and I think we are better for it now. But for many, for, for the five years uh, following that first set of riots, we had internet shutdowns 
uh, in India. And a lot of these were as a function of hate speech spreading on WhatsApp. Um, I think India had from, for a few years over 100 internet shutdowns in the country. Um, in some parts of the country, the internet was shut down for six months. Um, and some of this can all directly be uh, you know, uh, triangulated to hate speech spreading on WhatsApp. In fact, I spoke with uh, a, a local police commissioner uh, who said just as much that we don't have a choice because these messages are spreading so fast that we don't know how to stop it. Uh, and we have no choice but to shut the internet down. It's a forceful reminder that uh, while blitz scaling and frictionless entry and growth hacking may be great for the bottom line and for investors, uh, it's not always great for society. Um, and that uh, while some network effects are positive, not all network effects uh, are positive and some of them are creating very real problems, uh, both on, on smaller and especially in the larger platforms. Uh, Nikhil, I thought maybe I should sort of end with a, a straight question. You've offered us a, a lot of nuance, uh, but there is also a fundamental question here, I suppose. You were pointing out and reminding us that platforms are private for-profit companies that perform a sort of a public function. And as private property, the current state of affairs is that they clearly are able and, and allowed to ban you or me as individual users. Uh, but I suppose the question that we started with was the question of whether they should be allowed to ban political leaders, whether Donald Trump uh, or others. What do you think of this decision that they made? Um, I, in my opinion, I think they should be free to ban um, political leaders, uh, just as they should be free to ban you or me, if we are violating the community guidelines and particularly if we're violating laws of the country. Um, only that we would expect consistency from them in the application of this particular approach. It shouldn't be that they've allowed Trump to, you know, drip feed hate and foster, um, you know, hatred against uh, some communities over a period of time, um, and then choose to ban him because he no longer has the power. Some call consistency the hobgoblin of small minds, uh, but I think there's a stronger case to be made that consistency is absolutely essential to due process and the rule of law, uh, and thus also the protection uh, of free speech online. Nikhil, thank you so much for being with us today and outlining your views on the situation in the US and what it means for uh, India and, and the rest uh, of the world. Uh, thanks for having me on, Desmos. It was a pleasure. Our guest today was uh, Nikhil Pava, who's co-founder of Medianama and a journalist who has covered the business of digital media in India for many years. Make sure to follow our podcast channel on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss the next episode. And if you don't want to miss any news from the Reuters Institute, subscribe to our weekly newsletter by clicking the link on our Twitter bio or on our homepage. Thank you for listening to the future of journalism. I'm Rasmus Nelson from the Reuters Institute. We'll be back soon.